This is a series called Epic. And before we get started, I just have one question for you. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been flying somewhere and you want to get a little work done or you want to get a little sleep happening and the person next to you decides they want to talk to you? Well, I'm Rob Jacobson, if we haven't met before, and I'm usually that guy. (laughs) And I remember one time I was flying, and I was a young, new Christian. I was full of life and energetic and being slightly extroverted then as well as now. I started talking to the guy next to me in the plane, and he was a pretty polite, intelligent, even-keeled kind of person. And so we engaged in some dialogue, and somehow the the topic turned to to faith and religion, and I gave him my theological views, which were, Jesus is awesome, and he gave me his theological views, which were, well, I guess if I had to pick, I would say I'm probably Jewish. And I'm like, how do you be probably Jewish? And I think I just asked him that, and he said, uh, well, I only believe something in the Bible if I can clearly see it at least three times. And I don't remember a lot of the conversation after that, but I remember walking away from that conversation wondering if I could even believe, let alone confidently believe, the things that I'd come to accept in the last year of my life or so of believing in Jesus. And I didn't have a lot of confidence at that point. But I I wish that I knew some of what I've learned now back then. Because I think a lot of people walk through life wondering like the old me and this guy on the plane, wondering like who they really are, what they really believe, and if there is this bigger story to life that matters. And so part of that is why we're doing this series called Epic, because we believe, I believe, that the Bible is this epic story that's given to us to reveal a God to us and to reveal the state of humanity to us and to reveal these bigger things that matter in life. Now, there are a lot of creation stories out there. Every culture has one. And if you look back, you'll see that the common argument wasn't about creation or evolution at that time. It was about which gods made the world and how those gods interacted with humans. So you can look back at the Greeks, the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians, and the Babylonians, and they'll all tell stories of how gods created the humans, but they certainly didn't care for them and love them. In fact, it was the other way around, that the humans were created to care for or provide for and serve the gods. And they always were wondering if these gods would ever accept them. Have you ever been in a situation, whether it's in a faith situation or just a relationship situation, where you wondered, if I could really truly reveal myself, if you knew who I really was, like, would you honestly accept me? Well, those questions are answered in the first story of this opening that God gives us. Now, it begins much different than the other ways of the story. If you want to open to Genesis, I mean, our story here in the Bible begins with this God who already existed and who created a world that had a beginning because he called it into being. He calls light out of darkness. He calls order out of chaos. He even makes life come from dirt and thin air. Think about that. Literally thin air. He had to create an expanse that would house air to give future life. And in those, as you read or listened to the story of the video, could you hear the harmony and the abundance and the goodness 
that God put into this creation. And if you haven't, I would go back and I would read it. But this moment that is like the pinnacle moment, I'll call it, the only one or the first one that's called very good is when he actually creates humanity. I want to talk about that for a few minutes because I don't think we get that. And it's written in the Bible way more than three times. So we're going to come back to Genesis 1, but first I want to go to Psalms 8. And I would encourage you, especially if you're not sure if you know these, but even if you think you've heard some of these verses before, I would encourage you to write down the references and, and think about them this week in kind of summary or in a uh, sequential way. And, and just see if you might not agree with me. You don't have to agree with me right now, but if you're a skeptic, it's okay. You can, you can question it. Um, Lord knows I have. But read these as we go through them and write them down and maybe look at them later to see what they do speak to you in accumulation. So before we begin, let's just have a moment of prayer. God, we all... I came today from different places. I think the common thing was that it was freezing outside. And it was probably a challenge to find a parking spot. But I pray that whatever those things and whatever else is on our mind would would move to the back so that we could hear you, not just in, in these words, but in your word, through your spirit today, God. That we would hear how you feel about humanity and how you feel about us, what you think about us. And let nothing stand in our way to hear that, God. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, Psalm 8 opens with these writer talking about this question of when I consider, in verse 3, when I consider your works, your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind? that you would care for them and be mindful of them, or human beings that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels, and you crowned them with a glory and an honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all the flocks and herds, all the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the sea. This, This idea that the writer's imagining of creation is that humans were made as this pinnacle moment. The only thing that would have been bigger than humans was the angels, which I think is pretty incredible because angels are eternal. They don't have a body. I mean, that's kind of limitless. And and we're created just below the angels. Now, in Genesis 1, the angels aren't specifically included in the creation story, but I think part of that is because the writer wants us to know how humanity is the climax and is the pinnacle of God's creative work. So in Genesis 1.26, it says that God said, let us make humans in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the, the birds in the sky and the livestock and the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. I wish we could reign over those little animals that scurry along the ground, but I don't want to get sidetracked. So God said, let, so God created humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Let us make humans 
in our image to be like us. This words for image and likeness are these, these words of icon and statue and models. It would, this, it would be this idea that in form and function we would resemble God. Now, now, there's four places, I think, in Genesis where God actually speaks of us being an icon of God, an image bearer of God. And the rest of Scripture throughout is written as an icon is an idol and something that we are not to worship. But in this original story of creation, we are icons of God. We are image bearers of God. And, and though it gets twisted throughout Scripture, God's original intent was for us to resemble him. In, in form must be our spiritual and our mental capacities to relate to and reflect God because God doesn't have a body. But then in our function, it would be this, this agent that God gives us, this vice regency, if you will, this ambassadorship to reign over creation and rule over creation, not in a way that exploits, but in a way that cultivates potential. Those are juicy words. Think about those. To cultivate potential throughout the earth. There's all kinds of potential that's seeds that are in the ground that will give birth to trees, that will give birth to fruit, that will give birth to seeds, that will fall and give birth to more trees. And I mean, abundance is written everywhere. And it's not just written into the plants, it's written into humanity. That God wants to cultivate this in each human being. Let us make humans in our image and in our likeness. This idea of making is this idea of forming and molding and shaping with care and deliberation, kind of like an artist would shape pottery or an artist would paint a picture. And Psalm 139 agrees with this. I'm going to read it out of the message because I think it gives it a certain flavor and a certain emotion to it. The poet is saying in Psalms 139, verse 13, Oh yes, God, you shaped me from the inside out. First inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God. You're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit. How I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. All the days of my life prepared before I'd even lived one day. Your thoughts, how rare and how beautiful, God. I'll never comprehend them. In fact, I couldn't even begin to count them. If I did, they would be like trying to count the sand on the sea. Now, as a fun challenge, I encourage you to read this with as few clothes as you feel comfortable with. I'm not trying to be weird, but, but as, as few clothes as you feel comfortable with to get this idea of an artist and read this in front of the mirror. You can just do it by yourself just to see, do I really believe that God made me like this? That he was this artist that when he looks at you, he goes, Yeah! There, I made her. Oh, do you see him? Look at the sculpting. Mmm, the buns of clay. Or, well, anyway, sorry. But that God knew you before you were born, knew everything about you, and says, oh, that's awesome. He is awesome. She is beautiful. 
Now, there are some grandparents, because I've been on the plane when I've had wanted to do work, and the grandparents are like, can I show you my kids? Look, I have a new phone, and it shows all the pictures. Look, we can scroll through. And, and it's cute for like two minutes, and then, you know, I'm polite, and I, I don't do that. But my daughter and I are making a canoe. This has a point. And she's asked me, Dad, can we fly to the Bahamas? And I'm like, oh, someday, yeah, maybe. And, I, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to do that here. Maybe someday. Well, can we climb Mount Everest? Because I love to climb mountains, and I think that would be amazing. And I'm like, I think we would die. <laughs> so I, I keep trashing her dreams, and about a month later, she says, hey, Dad, can we build a canoe? And I thought to myself, my father-in-law has all the tools that we would need to do woodworking. D- yes, dear, we can build a canoe. We can do this. Yes, yes, I will, f- I will cultivate your dreams and your potential, dear. We will do this. So we shape wood, and we cut, and we, we saw, and we use eye protection, if my wife's listening, and, and, and we measure, and we saw, and we, we sand, and we fiberglass, and we get it on ourselves, and, and this thing is actually taking the shape of a canoe, and, and she's almost ready when it's done to go in it with me and have it float. She wants me to do it first, but in this moment, this is what I show people now. Pe- some people show pictures of their kid. I'm like, you want to see my canoe? I would love to show you my canoe. It's coming to ca- It is beautiful. It is good. I am cultivating all this potential with my father-in-law and my daughter, and she's going to grow up to a healthy human being because I didn't squash this dream. <sighs> it's a little, little eccentric, right? But that's just getting at a hint, a hint at what God thinks about you. That he goes, oh, her, him, that one, oh. I was a part of making them. I was a part of molding them. Let us make humans in our image and in our likeness. Let us, like, that God was in community, Father, Son, and Spirit at the beginning of creation, which is important because God didn't sit around all by himself going, gee, this is kind of boring now that I made the world. I wonder who I can share it with. I am in deficit. I know I'll I'll make humans so that I can have relationship. Maybe you've been in a time in your life where you're like, I need a friend. God didn't do that. God was in community, Father, Son, and Spirit, saying, what could we create that would resemble us, that would be like us? And so I've always pictured God the Father in the white um, lab coat, and God the Son with a carpenter's tools and probably a flannel shirt, and God the Spirit in like a painter's smock. And I don't, I don't know why I have this image, but I, I picture God as the chemist who's creating the substance that will be this block, and the, God the Son chiseling us out and sanding and sawing and, and making us, and then God the Spirit painting us into all the colors and, and fullness that we would be. And, and there's a piece of that that's true, because when when he's done, he does say, yeah, that's my masterpiece. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's masterpieces created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's masterpieces, but we're not just inanimate objects that we can show people pictures of, that we can set on a shelf or hang from our garage or put in the backyard. We are his creation, his humans. Because it says, let us make, which isn't just fashioning and forming 
clay. It's the same word that they would say to fashion or form an idea in our head, to conceive an idea. Think about this, that this God that is Father, Son, and Spirit, a God that is, yes, a good Father, over and over in Scripture, God is referred to as a Father. There are fatherly qualities, masculine qualities to this God, but just as many, almost just as many times, there are feminine qualities that are associated with God. That God is not genderless, God is gender full, like both genders, male and female, he created them. If he would have only created one, then it wouldn't have encompassed his image and his likeness. I'm not saying you have to go and address God as mother, but God is like a mother, Isaiah tells us. He, he protects and covers us. And when I, uh, Jacob gives his blessing to his children in Genesis 49, Jacob uses the words breasts and womb to associate with the fertility and the spreading of the, the family that he would have. These are feminine qualities. So God in his masculinity and God in his femininity says, let us make babies, let us make humans. Once you get over the weirdness of that, can you conceive a God who said they, that he was so in love, so in perfect fellowship, that, that like parents who are in love, that say, we could make a baby that would resemble us and share in this love. That God made offspring that would be like him. Well, now it doesn't seem so weird that God would love us. And since there's a plethora of babies around here and a, a handful of pregnant mothers, I get to hear lots of comments and questions that they have. Like, oh, I, I wonder what kind of personality she's going to have. He sure kicks a lot. I wonder what he's going to be good at. Or I wonder what color eyes he's going to have. Or I wonder what color hair she's going to have. Or I wonder what she's going to look like. I wonder what he's going to look like. Well, God knew all the answers to those questions. He knew everything about us, and he loves us in spite of all that or because of all that. So the things that you might think are quirks in you, God put in you. And if we go to 2 Corinthians, we know that God works good out of his weakness, and he shows up even further in our weakness. And so those things that you hate or that I hate, because maybe I'm just speaking to myself right now, are things that God says are good. I mean, Zephaniah 3.17 goes even one step further. He, the Lord your God, will take delight in you in gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears, and he will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I mean, some of us are going to watch a game later that's called football here, and, and when the purple team scores, there's going to be cheering and there's going to be singing. School, boy! That's all I'm going to do. Because there's, 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 sometimes there's words that can't express what only song can express. And that the God of the universe would hold us and would stroke our head like a doting first-time father in the waiting room, utterly amazed at what just happened. Because you know for nine months he had no clue. That's just a hint of who God is. 
And if you're a nature person, then the way you look at cotton candy colored sunrises is the way that God looks at you. And the way that you look at mountain stillness, serenity, lakes are the way that God looks at you. Or snow-capped mountains, that's the way that God looks at you. And if you're not into nature, then the way that you listen to music, if you're a music person, and the way that you can just be just paralyzed with awe is how God hears you. And if you're a meat person, then the way you look at a juicy, thick steak, the point is that God absolutely unconditionally and exceedingly loves you. And it's true that in a world today where, where most people say that, I, at least I hear this, that humanity is basically good. Like, you know, the world is good. It's just there's a few people that just mess it up for the rest of us. We, we do, if we follow Jesus, need to listen to what Jesus said when he was called good. He said, good? Why do you call me good? Jesus is saying, only God is good. We, we do need to hear that we are sinners and we are broken and we are separated from God and we are not good. That is true, but we do need to hear that in the beginning, God created us and intended us to be and experience life beautifully, abundantly, and amazingly with him. And I think one of the coolest things about that is that he didn't expect us to remain in this infant-parent relationship. Because it's one thing to, to look at a, a small being and think they're beautiful. You know, if you've ever watched a movie where there's parents like staring in the, through the glass and there's all those plastic bowls that babies are in, you know, and they all look kind of the same and they all look kind of ugly sometimes. I mean, let's just be honest. They're just weird. And the parents are like, oh, yeah. I mean, that's cute for a while, but after that, it gets a little old. There comes a point in, I think, humanity's life where we say, I don't want you to treat me like a baby. Well, we hear in the story that God doesn't want to treat us like infants either. In Genesis 1.28, he, he says to the man and the woman, the male and the female, he says, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, govern it, Reign over those fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the animals that scurry along the ground. And so God wants us to be these creatures that, that love him like, like he loves us, like making and having and holding a newborn baby. But he also wants, because he gives us dignity as humans, and he gives us intimacy, and he gives us responsibility, he also wants this adult relationship with us, a mature relationship with us. And so he gives authority to us. In Genesis 2, 7, it says that God formed the man from the dust of the earth and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being and the Lord formed a garden in the east and he placed the man in it. And Genesis 2, 15 tells us that he put the man there to work and care for it. That there was goodness, there was goodness in this responsibility. There was goodness in this work. It wasn't a curse. Because again, I think that God wants this mature relationship with us. He doesn't want to treat us like infants forever. Just like you and I don't want to be treated as infants. Do you remember the first time that you got a real job, a job that paid? Now, 
Some people were just really excited about getting that paycheck. I was just excited on the first day that I didn't get fired. And on the second day, when the, the boss person was like, hey, you did really good. And it was kind of important because it was my dad. I think that was my first job. But there was this responsibility that I had at 12 years old that I'm like, yeah, I'm becoming an adult. And that's what God wants with us too. But I think the most important thing or the most eye-opening thing for me in the, in the last one as we talk about this idea of God making the world and intent, and what did he intend? He intended to love us, to have us reflect his image. He intended us to have an adult relationship with him, to be responsible, mature beings. But he also didn't come with a condition. In Genesis 2, if we combine the two stories of Genesis 1 and 2, then then we know that God created human beings in which day? Six. Yes, good job. There was a, it wasn't a trick question. So if God created us on day six, then which day would he have placed us in the garden? At the end of day six. And so what would we have experienced in the garden, which, by the way, Eden means delight. So in this garden of delight that God wants to have and to hold and to be in mature relationship in this unconditional love, what day would, what first full day would we have experienced? Seven, rest. That matters, people. That matters so much. Because like I didn't want to get fired on my first day and I needed to hear good job on my second day of work, God didn't have any of those conditions. Yes, he gave us responsibility. Yes, he gave us maturity. Yes, he gave us authority. Yes, he had expectations. But the first thing that he experienced with us was unconditional love and experience with him. And on the seventh day, When the heavens and the earth were finished, down to the last detail, the seventh day, God finished his work. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And not because he was tired, but because everything was as it should be. And he blessed the seventh day, and he called it holy. It was the first and only thing at that moment, the first thing he called holy was this idea of rest. Because on that day, he rested from all his work and all the creating he had done. And the man and the woman in the Garden of Delight got to experience perfect relationship with the creator of the universe. That's a good story. If I think about the religions of the world, there is not too many. In fact, I know of only Christianity, I guess maybe Judaism, at least that would start with this unconditional acceptance of humanity to God. What would it look like if you started to shape your life in this way? When was the last time that you experienced a 24-hour period of rest, of stopping? It's funny, the people that get the weirdest about this are the people who love Jesus. Well, I mean, this is an Old Testament thing. I don't think we need to do this. You know, I, my favorite, my favorite was I actually worked for someone, and I should have seen this as a warning sign. My favorite was I had a, a person who said, well, I find work incredibly rejuvenating and restful. Like, I just love work so much that it's not work to me, so I don't need to rest. And this day of rest is never, ever an obligation. It's always been an invitation. An invitation to stop. An invitation to stop working, but I think an invitation to so much more. 
invitation to stop seeing yourself as someone who has to produce, an invitation to stop earning and wondering if your worth is going to come from what you produce and what you do. It's an invitation to stop sustaining yourself. It's an invitation to stop thinking that you make the world go round or stop thinking, if I don't, it won't happen. And I know. There's been a lot of years not believing that this day of rest was something that I should do, that I could do, and that I would find actually not just relaxation in and not just rest from work, but I would actually find myself, as I started to practice this, delighting in God and understanding and learning that God delights in me. This is the invitation that you and I are invited to be in when we practice stopping, is that we would delight in God and that we would experience God delighting in us. And I challenge you, if you know Jesus, to try this. To go for a walk, maybe, maybe it's at an arboretum because it's like a bazillion degrees cold outside, but go somewhere where there's humidity and, and, and plants and just go for a walk and walk and talk with God like you would with a friend. Put, put headphones on and, or pretend like you have a telephone pierced in so that you could talk to yourself and people wouldn't think you're weird. Sometimes I do that. Mm-hmm. That's okay. But listen to him. Tell him the good stuff and the bad stuff and the things that you're excited about and the things that you're not excited about. He can listen. He can take it. And then listen for his affirmation and his instruction and maybe his correction, but ultimately his love. Guys, if we did this, I think we would start to understand that God's vision at the beginning really was to create a world that lived in harmony with him, with each other, and with the world in such a way that we could walk in real relationship with each other and with God in a way that would bring goodness and reflection of how great God is. And I don't think it's idealistic. I actually believe that this is possible. And if you're in a place where that's just really, really hard, know that God loves the world so much that when we messed it up, he did everything he could to save it. In fact, he brought his son to rescue us from even that. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, hey, if you are weary, broken, burned out on religion, if you are so tired that you are going to fall over, then come to me and I will give you real rest. I will, I will help you to understand that I unconditionally love you, that you don't have to do anything to make me love you more. That God doesn't sit around and go, well, I'd love you if you uh, lost 15 pounds. I'd love you if you got a better job or earned a little more money. I'd love you if you, you know, just did this or that. That God just wants to be with you, experience life with you, and have you experience life in him. Would you try it? Would you pray with me? God, thank you for these verses and for your story. For your story that really truly is different than all the other stories. 
that out of your goodness and your love that you created, that you protected and provided for us, and as humans, you gave us dignity and worth and your image and your likeness. I pray, God, that we could truly stop and listen to the love that you have for us, to what you intended for us, to the mature relationship that you want for us. And I thank you that you, that you pursued us even when we turned our backs on it. And today I pray that we could truly take action by not taking action, except to enjoy you and to start to believe that you enjoy us. Thank you for proving it, Jesus, by living and dying for us. Help us to love you back. Amen.